Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Michael Easton. He's the president of Fellowship Financial Group uh, based in uh, Altamont Springs, Florida, and he's also the author of a new book called Common Sense Income Strategies, Simple Step-by-Step Ways to Maximize Your Retirement. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks, Jordan. It's a privilege to be here. Let's just get a little background on you first and uh, what you do as a financial planner and kind of your career leading up to where you are now. Yeah, sure. I am uh, a CPA by background and training. I've been in financial services for going on 30 years. I can't believe it. I started when I was uh, six or seven. So just to put that in context. But um, but yeah, I've been in, uh, in, in financial services for a number of years um, and currently uh, the, the president founding member of the Fellowship Financial Group, where we primarily serve uh, the tax and investment needs of baby boomers, retirees, business owners, and folks like that. Okay. And what was your uh, impetus to do this book? And there's a lot of books out there about income. Why did you think you had something different than what, what had already been done? Well, here's the way I look at it is that, um, you know, baby boomers, and we, and we all hear this. That, that people need to take a balanced approach to their investments. Well, I, I believe that's true, but I think that uh, especially baby boomers, they, they need to take a balanced approach based on a strategy that supports their retirement goals and not one that's in direct conflict with them. Too many times people uh, have a strategy that's in direct conflict with their goals and they don't even know it. And the other impetus was based on the fact that there are a lot of half-truths that are out there. Um, in the mainstream financial world, it can be challenging. So I want my readers to understand the whole truth because when you understand the the whole picture, it changes your perspective. Let me give you an example. I mean, if I told you I uh, my between my wife and I, we run an average of 10 miles a week, Jordan, you're going to get a picture in your mind, right? You're out there, good weather, yeah. bad weather. Mm-hmm. But if I, if I actually said, well, really, my wife runs 20 miles a week and I don't run at all. Well, I haven't really lied to you because the average is 10. But uh, when you know the whole picture, it changes your entire perspective. That's how it is in the financial world. So let's kind of take a broad view of what's happening with retirement today. Are most people getting to retirement in pretty good shape having done the right things? Or are most people getting to retirement not in good shape, not having done the right things? You know, I see a balance. I mean, there are quite a few people that come into my office who have done a great job of saving. In other words, they've they've um, accumulated a nice nest egg. Uh, so they, they, they've been the disciplined systematic investor. Problem is when you get closer to retirement in what I refer to as that red zone of retirement, if you will, the 10 years or so uh, before retirement and then working all the way up to retirement, you need to take a look at your strategy in detail to ensure that it lines up with the things that you want to do. Because when you get into retirement, you know, you're all of that stuff that you've accumulated over the years needs to be able to provide you a replacement for your salary. In other words, income. So a lot of people are getting there. They're going to be living longer and you have interest rates that have stayed pretty much near zero, at least for the safe alternative CDs, money market funds for a long time. It looks like they're going to stay that way. So is that the conundrum for retired people today is not earning much on their bank accounts and living longer? Yeah, I think if you if you look at the economic environment, then with with the choices that are propagated out there in main uh, regular financial media, well, then it, it forces people to um, it forces people up the risk curve in a time period when they should be actually stabilizing or moving down the risk curve, and it makes it very difficult when you look at CD rates and they're less than one percent or. On the high end for longer-term CDs, maybe you can get two percent or so, but uh, but that's really about it. So it's a very challenging um, environment, and people aren't aware what uh, is really what are the real alternatives to uh, to help them to accomplish a reasonable rate of return, but not take too much risk at the same time. So that's what you can do in the financial planning planning practice. You have is yeah. you can help people take the capital they've got invest in a diversified portfolio of income strategies so that they can earn a decent income without taking too much risk. Is that what you deliver? 
That's right. Yeah, we specialize in what I refer to in the book and in my practice as the universe of income generating strategies. That is things that pay interest and dividends and, um, and, and focus more on protection, lower risk than traditional non-dividend paying common stocks so that, uh, so that people who are living longer can feel comfortable that if they um, are generating enough income in the early part of retirement, uh, in that, that latter part of retirement, then it's okay to take some principal. You just have to do it in a measured way. The thing you don't want to do is take too much principal too early in your retirement. Because then you're, you really are at risk of running out of money when you run out of money. And that happens a lot to people. So the first part of your book, you talk about what investors want most. So what do investors want most in, in this whole question? Well, the, the biggest thing that I find that investors are looking for is they're looking for income and they're looking for peace of mind. And I, I liken that to a situation where, you know, people aren't really, um, they're not really aware of the fact that, or they don't really think about it. I think most people, when they check their gut instinct and common sense would tell them that, um, that yeah, that's right. I don't want to spend principal too soon in my retirement. I want to, um, I want to generate enough money so that I don't have to touch my principal, um, at least early on in, in retirement. So, um, so yeah, that's the, that's exactly what the rub is. That's where it is. So you say there are five new realities now in the last 10 years or so that have to, people have to uh, understand in this kind of environment. The first one is about what the, what has been the impact of the financial crisis on economic growth? Yeah, I mean, the impact of uh, financial crisis has been that um, that people got nervous. For example, they um, they took they, they took too much risk in the early years, and um, and as they got closer to retirement, that um, that they didn't take cha- they didn't take the time to change the strategy at all. They just maintained that the old mantra about the stock market. Um, you know, always goes up or it goes up over the long, long run, which I believe personally, you know, but you have to understand what the long run is and how history plays a role in that long run. And that's the other thing that we spend some time in the book just developing so that people can understand that generally speaking, history goes through cycles. It tends to repeat itself. And the stock market is no different. Economic cycles are no different. So what role do economic cycles play on decisions that people make about their investments and retirement, especially depending upon where they are in, uh, in their, their own personal economic life cycle? We've got a very long cycle. We've basically pretty had an up market, at least in the stock market, since 2009. Uh, is this going to continue for a while, or do you think the uh, bull market is getting long in the tooth here? Well, I, look, I firmly believe we're in uncharted territory. So, you know, I, I think the market since 2009 has obviously gone up dramatically. So you have to ask yourself, I mean, if you're two years away from retirement, five years away from retirement, then can you afford to take a 30 to 70 percent loss in your portfolio this close? Do you have the time to recover? When you were 25 or 30 or even 40 years old, you had a lot more time to recover. But um, even but if the momentum of the market could push it up another 10 percent so or so without, you know, having some sort of a, of a major correction, well, you have to weigh that against the downside risk. So if the upside is 10 percent, the downside is, say, 40 percent, then it's almost as if you, you go to a casino and you sit down at a table and you realize if I win, I win $10. But if I lose, I lose 40 I'm going to go out on a limb, Jordan, and say you're probably not going to sit at that table. I know I'm not, but the problem is when when you look at uh, most uh, investors today, a lot of them are taking that kind of risk and not even knowing it because they're investing for growth or what I refer to as performance versus income or what I f- refer to as purpose. Yeah. One of the other big realities you say people have to deal with is uh, high-speed, high-frequency trading. Uh right. What has been the impact of that on uh, the, the markets? Well, the the impact of high-speed trading and a lot more institutional trading is just that, um, y- you know, 
that these institutions that operate with high-speed trading and those other types of things or control uh, very large sums of money, they're operating right now, especially with the market so high, with their finger on the trigger. In other words, when, when they pull the trigger and say, well, I'm moving to cash or I'm taking a large sum of money going to cash, they're not going to be the ones that get hurt. It's the, uh, the general consumers, the folks that like you and I who are just trying to make a reasonable amount of money. So it takes a lot more control away from the individual and, um, and really makes them more vulnerable. So when the market is at a high point like now, then you have to evaluate, well, how much income do I need? Uh, determine how many, what are your assets? And do I have the uh, bandwidth, so to speak, to handle a loss? If I have discretionary assets, well, that's one thing. But you still have to make sure that you have enough assets generating income for you to meet your day-to-day needs and maybe some of the additional longer-term goals. That you have. So basically what you're saying is that because of these additional risks, people in stocks today nearing retirement are taking more risk than they should be, and they should have more assets out of growth stocks and into uh, bonds and income-generating investments, which won't get hurt as much if the stock market falls in a big way. That's exactly right. Yeah, you you know you, you succinctly put it there. Uh, what people don't realize is that when you're in, if you're investing for income, well, generally you're reducing your risk. What are you getting? I think that the uh, people have is well, in order to get income, I have to take risk. That's not necessarily true. In order to get more growth, then you have to take more risk. Or in order to hope for more growth, you have to take. More very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Michael Easton. He's the president of Fellowship Financial Group, uh, and he has a new book out called Common Sense Income Strategies, Simple Step-by-Step Ways to Maximize Your Retirement. And you can find out more at his website for the book, which is commonsenseincomestrategies.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Michael Easton. He's the president of Fellowship Financial Group based in Altamont Springs, Florida, and author of a new book called Common Sense Income Strategies. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Great to be here, Jordan. So we were talking about the new realities that uh, income investors face, the first one being the financial crisis affecting economic growth, the second one being high-speed trading. The third one, you say, is that the nation's getting older so what is the impact of the aging of the baby boom on investment markets? Well, the, the fact that um, you know, people have a, a, a vast insecurity about Social Security itself. 
Um, and and the, the problem is that people are living longer. So that means that um, that the, the social security system can become more unstable. In fact, they kind of advertise that. What that means to individuals is, especially with baby boomers, they don't necessarily have to worry about social security going away. But what they do need to do is ensure that they have enough uh, enough other assets that can supplement social, social security because you know social security was never designed to be the prime resource in retirement it's becoming too often these days where people only have social security and that can be a great concern especially with the cost of living adjustments that exist on social security that in my mind are just kind of a shell game um, so people that's not going to make sure that you keep up with um, with the, the cost of, of living in retirement, especially if you live 20, 30 years in retirement. So what do you think is going to happen in the long run to Social Security? Will they raise the taxes? Will they reduce the benefits? Because uh, at some point, it's going to run out of money. So wh- what do you think is going to be done? Well, they're doing some of those things now. I mean, just look at the, uh, the wage base. I mean, just this year in 2017, the wage base jumped from 118000 up to 127. That means that uh, they'll be able to collect Social Security on even higher income amounts. So that's one of the things. I mean, uh, pushing back full retirement age is another one that's most likely going to happen. I don't expect full retirement age for me and um, my generation, those that are born after 1960, um, to be, you know, it's it's likely going to be 70. So those are a couple of things. In addition to that, maybe reducing the benefit. taking away the cost of living adjustment, which I mentioned before is more of a shell game. But uh, but again, all the more reason that the impetus uh, and the onus needs to be on the retiree to try and plan for um, a, a, an enhanced uh, savings in retirement. So Social Security was originally designed as like a supplement to your pension and your other investments. You're saying in a certain way, it's got to kind of go back to that. It had been become the major source of income for a lot of people, but it it should its its rightful place was to be as a supplement, and you're saying that's what's coming next. That's correct. That's right. Yeah. The next thing you say is that the U.S. is no longer the undisputed center of the economic universe. Uh, all this competition from around the world. How does that affect the investment environment? Well, it means more people are vying for not an increasing, not a, a continuing increasing um, investment environment. So that just means that there's more pressure. Uh, so, yeah, again, it, when you look at it in today's environment, people are, are forced to take more risk because the things that we relied on, relied on, on for lower risk, i.e. I. CDs, for example, in the bank, if you didn't want to take any risk, it was easy to just buy a CD, get 5% and, uh, and call it a day. But you can't do that anymore. And so the pressure from all of the, glo- the global development is that um, it is just that. It, put, it forces people to go up the risk curve even further. And another thing you say is the new reality is the sandwich generation, where people have to take care of their parents and their kids at the same time. What impact is that having on retirement planning? Well, then what what tends to happen is you got two or three generations living in the same house uh, where uh, the kids are supporting mom and dad, and they have their own family as well. Then, uh, then of course, that's going to put a burden on your budget, something that you didn't plan for. Uh, so th- that's one of the biggest realities that that's existing today is there's more and more people that are living, you know, they're taking care of their their parents or uh, their their uh, uh, grandparents are taking care of taking care of grandchildren, and those types of things were not something that that people planned for. It, sur- it just wasn't something that happened uh, in prior generations. Because people are living longer, and in many cases, the kids after they go to college are coming back and living at home because they can't that's afford right. to be out on their own. That's yeah. right. So it goes both ways. You have a whole chapter on what you call fact-checking Wall Street. So what is wrong with what people see about Wall Street uh, that, that hurts their retirement planning? Well, the fact-checking is simply trying to help people understand the whole truth. You know, I, 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 I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so I don't want uh, that to be the case. But um, when you look at when you look at the information that's out there, I mentioned at the outset, Jordan, that half-truths create a, a perception of reality and a lot of times that's what we hear i mean just if you think about what a what a long term from an economic standpoint for example you have something called a long term secular bear market and historically over the last 200 years those have lasted 
about 20 years on average. Uh, Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Michael Easton. He's the fe- president of Fellowship Financial Group and author of a new book called Common Sense Income Strategies. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Michael Easton. He's a certified uh, financial planner. He's also the author of a new book called Common Sense Income Strategies. And there's a website for that book, which is commonsenseincomestrategies.com. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Great to be here. So you have a whole chapter on stock market history talking about bull and bear cycles. We talked about that a little bit, but what is the point that people need to understand? We're in the middle of a major bull market here. that, that people who might not know stock market history should really know. Right. And this, the, what people need to understand is that, um, you know, the, the cyclical bull market that we're in doesn't necessarily reflect the, the reality that the economic bear market that we're in. And I mentioned that just a moment before we, uh, we took a break, which really means that, you know, a long-term secular bear market historically lasts about 20 years. That means that the positives and the negatives, they, um, they, um, they actually counteract themselves and they negate themselves. And, and, and if you look at, um, if you look at the, the bear market from 1966 to 1982, again, yes, you had positive years and you had negative years. But if you were the systematic investor that held on for that entire time period, that 17-year time period, well, this, the stock market was the same in 1966 as it was in 1982. So you got zero growth. Uh, and that's the way it is right now. You know, the, the current long-term secular bear market started in 2000 with the technology crash. And uh, if history is the indicator, which, again, I believe that it is, that we've, we've got arguably three to five years of, um, of just being stuck in the muck. The market can go up, it can go down. But again, if you're close to retirement, you need to reevaluate whether growth is the best strategy for you or is it taking too much risk and it's time to focus more on income. You talk about what to expect in retirement. Uh, what are the, some trends people should expect as far as the cost of living in retirement different from the past? Well, I think uh, when you, when you think, look at, uh, at individual expenses, I mean, certainly housing expenses are going to continue to increase. Um, you know, I mean, housing has increased dramatically over the last 10 years. Um, then you think about medical expenses. Medical expenses are probably one of the biggest culprits where, yes, we're living longer, but at what cost? There's a tremendous amount of, um, of additional costs for technology, for um, pharmaceuticals, and, and all of those types of things. So you've got to make sure that you plan for those in your budget. And not only today, but remember, we're talking about a 20 to 30 year time frame. And of course, not everyone's going to live 20 or 30 years in retirement. But, you know, just as a prudent strategist, it makes sense to, to at least plan for that long because you just don't know. And even at a modest inflation rate, I mean, let's say 4 to 5%, I'm not talking about hyperinflation, but at a modest inflation rate, that means that 
in your, you know, 20 years from now, you're going to need more than double the amount of income that you need today. And, uh, and, and again, that silent killer of inflation is one of the things that people don't really pay attention to. You have a whole chapter on uh, picking financial advisors, and here are some of the questions uh-huh. you ask about are you bound to a fiduciary standard. Now, the fiduciary rule from the Department of Labor has come in recently, so is that going to be much more common now that your advisor is going to be considered a fiduciary? Well, it depends on where that goes. I mean, right now there's a lot of uh, it's it's in flux, but but I do think that um, if you're a re- if you're a retiree or if you know if you've got assets that you're you're just trying to get some help with, well, don't be afraid to ask questions. That's the first thing, uh, because any good financial advisor would welcome questions about their business model. Um, you know, are you looking out for my best interest? Are you required by your professional ethics to? to look out for the best interests of the client. Now, look, I believe that most financial advisors, they want to do what's right by their clients. They want to do the right thing. The problem is that many times their hands are tied based on the products that the companies they work for sell. And those products may not necessarily be in the best interest of the client. So that's why having, um, making sure that you, you know, you've got a fiduciary standard, that's, uh, that's a good baseline. But also ask how you know how are you compensated? Are you compensated for selling products, or are you compensated for uh, the advice that you give, or for managing assets in an active way? Would you say that you should always steer away from somebody who's selling products who's getting a commission? You know that's that's kind of an overgeneralization. Not necessarily. I don't think there's anything bad about. Um, um, selling for a commission, but you just have to understand the difference in roles. And if you're looking for advice and you're looking for counsel, well, then um, just going to a product salesperson is probably not the best place to find it because all they have to do is is just say, yeah, you you check the boxes that mean you know you've got enough money and you've got enough money to buy this product and we can sell it to you. Uh, the, the the thing is, the kind of contradiction that is that. Those types of, of problems don't become an issue for us if we're buying groceries. But when it comes to your hard-earned assets, that, um, you know, that, then it becomes a real issue. It's something that people take very, very seriously, and, and that's why it's so important. You also say people should ask, what is your experience, meaning the advisor's experience, with situations like mine? There are many different uh, designations. You're a certified public accountant, but there are also... CFPs and many other, how should one know the right designation and the right expertise for your particular situation? Look, I, um, I think that, uh, that working with somebody who's got a history in the industry, they don't necessarily have to have all the letters behind their name, but they do need to have experience and training. That's very, very important. Um, in, our, in our business as a CPA and a personal financial specialist, which is a designation that, um, that CPAs who specialize in financial, plan- in, in financial planning earn, it's very similar to the CFP. Um, so that means that, that we've gone through a lot of training, that there's, a, there's testing that's involved in order to get those certifications. Uh, so uh, when you first jump in, that means that you've, you've got a good understanding. Uh, and you have, you, you've got to be able to answer the right, or to ask your clients the right questions in order to ensure that the plan that you're putting in place uh, is going to support the goals that they have. Unfortunately, asking questions about income needs isn't necessarily one of the things that's asked too much in this environment. I mean, um, it, for the most part, it's not, it, it's not really required that you ask that question. All you have to do is ensure that, that, um, that the person is not, you know, they're comfortable with the level of risk and that they're, a, you know, whatever number, you have to know what number of years they are from retirement in order to come up with a risk profile. That puts the onus on the consumer. What I've found in my years of training and, and work with people is that a lot of times people don't realize how much risk they're taking in their existing portfolio. And it's someone who's got a professional background that can help point that out and identify any red flags that might exist in their current strategy that, uh, that could be in direct conflict and create a major problem for them uh, at some point down the road. There are some things you should you should not ask of a financial planner, and the first one is just do what you want. So, is that happen that people just kind of turn it over 
and don't really understand what the financial planner is doing? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you kind of you, you kind of blindly trust what the financial advisor says. And let me give you an example. You know, I had a, in 2008, I had a, a 68-year-old widow that came into my office who had lost 40% in her portfolio. And I, I asked her what happened, and she said that when her husband passed away, he was the one that managed all the money. So she went out and hired a financial advisor that said, okay, well, you should be earning 10% because that's basically what they tell us at the long run that the market produces. Well, by the time she was so sick to her stomach that she had to pull her money out, she had already lost 4%, I mean 40%. And I said to her, did he ever talk to you about income? Um, you know, cause that was a blind allocation. She just said, you do what you want. Um, and, and the answer was no. When we rolled up our sleeves and did the math, it turned out that she only needed to take, you know, to, to generate about 4% interest in dividends from that portfolio in, in order to live com- comfortably. So think about the difference in risk level between investing for 4% and investing for 10%. Uh, it's orders of, magn- orders of magnitude. And, and the just do what you want mindset, um, it, it, it really makes you vulnerable. We work hard to try and help our clients understand the characteristics of the investment vehicles that we're recommending as a part of their allocation, and each one's going to be a little different. And then you say that people should not ask the financial advisor, what is their performance? That's probably going to be the first thing they typically ask them. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you know, I do hear that quite a bit, quite a lot. And, um, and, and you know, if you're investing for growth, then that, you know, you're going you're gonna to be happy sometimes. You're going to be disappointed. Um, and, and so that's why performance, if you're, if you're asking about performance, that tells me right away, and you're in that category that's in the red zone of retirement, then you're asking the wrong question. You, you, know, you, you're, you should be asking, what are reasonable expectations of income and, uh, and what might I be able to expect in, in retirement? And then you also say they should not ask about the annual dinner cruise for clients or other kind of giveaways. <laughs> is, is that yeah, impact right. people's choice of financial advisors? Yeah, you know, sometimes, sometimes it does. You know, here in Florida, we've got people, uh, a lot of retirees and pre-retirees, they could eat dinner out almost every night of the week if they wanted to. Um, but, and that's probably because, you know, there are a lot of advisors that, that do a lot of dinner seminars and things like that to try and woo clients in. Uh, so if you're if you're going at it for the tchotchkes or the sizzle, then that's the again it's the wrong reason to um, to hire an advisor. So you have a whole chapter on what you call the world of income generating investments. So let's get into some of these and the pros and cons of different ones. Uh, the first one is bond mutual funds. What are the pros and cons of doing bond mutual funds as an income strategy as opposed to individual bonds? Well, actually, when, uh, when we have a client that wants to have bonds as a part of their portfolio, then we don't use bond mutual funds, and there's a specific reason why, and that's why I spend some time in the book talking about it. You know, people have a, a misconception or a misunderstanding about bonds, um, and, and also bond funds can give you a false sense of security, because if you own an individual bond, then you have two very important guarantees from the company that issues those bonds or the institution that issues those bonds. That is, number one, you're going to get a fixed rate of interest. That's a fixed income security. Uh, and also, it has a, a bond has a maturity date. That means that when the bond matures, then you're going to get your principal back. Again, assuming there's no defaults on the, on part, of, on the part of the institution. However, when you, when you uh, purchase bond mutual funds, well, Bond funds have no such guarantees whatsoever. There's no fixed interest rate. Uh, there's no maturity date. Bonds are, bond funds are, port, are, uh, are, 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 are kind of continue in nature. And as a result, you've got a bond fund manager who's buying and selling bonds all the time. So he could have gains and losses that could physically affect your account and your ability to, um, to take income from that account. Uh, because of the fact that, uh, that they had to sell at the wrong time. If you own individual bonds and your intention is to hold to maturity, well, all, any, any roles of, of positives and negatives, market value uh, adjustments, so to speak, they're paper losses because if you, your income is going to be consistent, it'll be paid out on time, and when the bond matures, you get your principal back. What is the minimum dollar amount that people need to do individual bonds, because the argument always for bond funds is it's an institutional market, 
and you have very wide spreads if you're going to do individual bonds. So you need a, a good amount of money to do individual bonds. What would be your minimum? Well, that's 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 one aspect of it, and yeah, it can be true. Yeah, there are some some spreads that can affect um, overall returns, but um, but generally, if somebody's going to make an uh, an allocation of their assets into bonds, we like to you know say a minimum is a, of fifty thousand dollars, because at least you can do a reasonable allocation across. Um, uh, several different institutions or several different companies, and we use bond desks, so we're able to to generate reasonable, um, you know, reasonable purchasing purchasing prices. It's a fairly efficient market. It's not nearly as efficient as the stock market, so it takes a little bit more work. But that's exactly the reason why it's more beneficial to the customer at times, is because. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it takes no effort whatsoever or very little effort to check a box uh, on a mutual fund uh, questionnaire and, uh, and then select a couple of, of mutual funds or bond funds. All that really means is that when the, bond, when the, when the, the stock market drops by 40%, well, your bond funds are only going to drop by 30 Problem is you still lose. What, what is your view of the bond market right now with what the Federal Reserve is doing as far as uh, – moving up interest rates and cutting back on its balance sheet. Uh, you know, interest right. rates on bonds are still relatively low in the 2 to 3% range for high quality. Is this a good time to get into individual bonds? Well, look, you, you can, there's, there are some sweet spots that exist in the bond market. And 2 to 3% is very high A-rated bonds. But um, even if you go to, uh, to invest, you stay within investment grades or maybe take a, a step or two outside of investment grade, you can still get 4 to 4.5% 4 on individual bonds. So for a lot of clients, that's a reasonable amount. They're not taking too much risk. They've got decent companies that have a track record. They have uh, transparent balance sheets, and they've got a, a sustainable amount of cash, which is what we're really looking for. So, the next you know, to, to supplement okay. that, um, I don't think that, as, as you mentioned earlier in the program, I don't think that interest rates are likely to go up uh, anytime soon. And, um, and we're in this lower interest environment for some time to come. The next thing you talk about is annuities, uh, where people put money in and it grows tax deferred, they take it out. What are the pros and cons of annuities from your point of view? Well, there are a number of different types of annuities, so let's fix, uh, let's, let's say what we're not talking about. We're not talking about variable annuities. I'm not a big fan for, um, for many retirees uh, of the variable annuities, except in very specific circumstances, because generally there, are, there tends to be a lot of fees in the variable annuities, and again, they're invested in the market, so they're in mutual funds. So if you're trying to reduce your risk, well, then you want to go with something with a, uh, an annuity that's either a fixed annuity or an indexed annuity. And a fixed annuity operates similar to a CD. In other words, it's a fixed rate of interest for a longer period of time. And uh, they continue, they're tax-deferred. So that's very helpful, especially with non-IRA assets. <clears throat> um, uh, indexed annuities, they simply... Uh, they can credit interest. The insurance company can credit interest based on the movement, the positive movement of a stock of, of a stock market index like the S and P 500, with no downside risk. So, in other words, you're not in the market; you're linked to the market, and that provides a lot of protection. and And many times, when when we use these types of tools, it's primarily for conservative and very conservative investors or people who want a baseline layer of, of income above. Their social security uh, and and indexed in, in annuities with certain types of income riders can do that very efficiently and very cost effectively because they're 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 not that expensive at all. Another thing you talk about is preferred stocks. What are the pros and cons of preferreds for income investors? Well, preferred stock is a different class of stock, uh, Jordan. Uh, for all. Uh, it is. It's you don't invest in a preferred stock at twenty-five dollars a share and think it's going to go to fifty. That's not the way that the market operates. A preferred stock uh, can act similarly to a bond, uh, but it provides a fixed rate of of dividend. And many many investment grade preferreds are going to be in the four to six percent range. Uh, some a little bit higher, but the, the, they they provide that consistent, predictable amount. Of income, and there, but there, there is some risk. I mean, with a preferred stock, again, you are dealing with um, with the fact that it is a stock, so the market values can go up and down. 
but they tend to gravitate around their par value, much like a bond, uh, because most of the time, any, any preferreds that we would use have a call provision, which means that the company can call that stock due, uh, much like a maturity date, although it's not a requirement like the maturity date. When a bond matures, they have to pay the, the principal back. In this case, if the bond, I mean, if the preferred stock goes beyond the, the call date and the, the stock is not called in, well, then they have to continue to pay that dividend. And so that's, again, predictable income that, uh, that you can rely on regardless of whether the market is up or it's down. And I, I liken that to owning rental real estate. I mean, if you own a piece of real estate and you know you've got income coming in, $1,000 a month, well, that's $12,000 a year. Do you really care whether the market value is 180000 160000 or 200000 Not if you're investing for income, and that's the way that, uh, that these types of tools work. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Michael Eastham. He's the author of a new book called Common Sense Income Strategies, and the website is commonsenseincomestrategies.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Michael Eastham. Uh, he is a certified financial planner. Uh, his company is called F- Fellowship, Fellowship Financial Group, based in Altamont Springs, Florida. And his new book is called Common Sense Income Strategies, Simple Step-by-Step Ways to Maximize Your Retirement. And a website for that is commonsenseincomestrategies.com. Welcome back to the show, Michael. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So we talked about annuities, we talked about individual bonds, we talked about preferreds. Another thing you like are real estate investment trusts. So what are the pros and cons of REITs in the current market environment? Yeah, um, I'm I'm more a fan of publicly traded REITs in this environment because, uh, because they number one, they tend to provide liquidity if you need it. Okay, so that's an important thing. REITs, real estate investment trusts or REITs are, are basically investing in companies that that own and manage real estate, whether they're um, in the in the government industry where they provide um, where they provide long-term leases to government office buildings or the healthcare sector, assisted living facilities, medical office buildings, a broad spectrum of investments um, of real estate investments. And one of the nice things about real estate investment trusts is that they're able to offer a higher dividend. To investors, again, it's predict. It's that that's the income component. You don't. You, you can get some growth, but on our side, as an advisor, uh, as a CPA and a financial advisor, we tend to focus more on trying to help people manage income in retirement, and not focus as much on the market value. So, with real estate investment trusts, then they're kind of a unique structure. They don't pay corporate income taxes, and the reason that they don't is because. They, um, they have agreed to pay out at least 90% of their profits in the form of dividends to you as the investor. And so that tends to make their, uh, the income payouts much higher. And, uh, and, and, and that's one of the things that's very attractive to them. 
But again, there are some gotchas. You've got to be careful that you're not in a in a poor sector like one right now that uh, that you probably read a lot about. I mean, uh, the retail sector, the brick and mortar retail sector, is kind of under attack, if you will, right now because of Amazon and some of these other big um, online retailers. Uh, so you had, you do have to be careful because there are some gotchas. But at the same so would time, would you stay away from those? Focusing would you on stay? income. Yeah, right would now we're stay? right now yeah. we're we're staying away, but. Uh, generally, but there are a few very good, um, very good uh, investment vehicles that are out there that are in the retail space. So it just it definitely depends. You want to make sure you have a good in-depth conversation with your financial advisor if you're interested in those types of vehicles. And again, you don't want to you're not going to allocate 100% of your assets to it as well. You want to make sure you have a prudent allocation so that um, that you're 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 uh, being a good steward of the assets that you have. Another uh, vehicle you like are so-called BDCs, which is a business development company. Tell us about right. those and the pros and cons of those for income investors. Yeah, sure. Uh, BDCs have been around since 1980 when they were effectively uh, instituted by con- Congress to be middle market lenders. Uh, in other words, the companies that are too big to go to a community bank to fund their growth, but they're too small to go out and do a public bond offering. Uh, this middle market, so to speak, is very large, and BDCs rose, out of, rose up out of a need to provide funding for growth to those types of companies. And uh, generally, the companies they invest in are non-public, but the BDCs we invest in are public for the most part. There are a few non-public BDCs that, um, that we work with, but uh, it's on a very limited basis with um, a certain handful of clients, but BDCs make their money based on interest that's paid on loans for their portfolios. And if you think about an individual BDC, well, one of the nice things from a diversification standpoint is that they're limited as to their total exposure to a given industry or a given company. So they have to be allocated across a portfolio, and that portfolio is anywhere from 80 to maybe 140 or 150 different companies. So you have a good amount of diversification across industries and across companies in a a strong BDC. And you do have to be careful. I mean, there are some BDCs that are out there that that make $2 million, $4 million loans to companies um, because they can't compete in that higher-end space. The top BDCs, you know, their their target is $25 to $250 million for loans, and they're going to have a higher... um, a proportion of their investment portfolio that is uh, that has debt that is secured. So these loans are backed by hard assets. So that gives you a little bit more security. So you part of what you do for your advisors, your your clients, is to pick individual BDCs and REITs and annuities. Because uh, there's a whole bunch of them out there. That's part of what you're doing is is doing the due diligence on specific uh, securities. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and providing that in you know, in, in an allocated uh, format for clients. But part of our process, Jordan, is, and this kind of goes back to the fiduciary aspect. I have clients, they don't want to touch BDCs. They don't want to touch REITs. They don't, you know, they just want one or two things. Maybe they're more conservative. But generally what happens is when we take people through our process of helping them to understand the investments that, um, that are in that basket, so to speak, then we typically will come back, come up with a, a good mix, a basket of three or four different types of assets of, of across asset classes that can provide stability, that can provide income, and can provide uh, visibility about what does the long-term future hold for you as an individual investor. We've talked about preparing for retirement, but you also have a section in your book about what to do if you're already retired. So the first thing you talk about is required minimum distributions. What do people need to know about taking RMDs correctly? Well, yeah, RMDs. I teach an entire class on RMDs because there's so much misinformation, and um, and one of that one of those pieces of inf- misinformation is that well, you know, I, I can take all of my RMD from one account. Well, that's only again that's a that's a half truth. If you have a money in a 401k and you have money in IRAs, well, that, then you have to take I, you have to take an RMD from both of those accounts, one from the IRA and one from the 401k. You can't just combine the numbers and take it from whatever asset is performing. Uh, that's a huge gotcha that uh, unfortunately a lot of people aren't even aware of. 
The other thing is that uh, the first year you take your RMD, which is 70 and a half, is when you have to take those required minimum distributions or at least start, is that you do have uh, kind of a, a, a buy, if you will, on that first year only. In other words, you can push. You're supposed to take it by December 31st of the year that you turn 70 and a half, but the first year you could push it until April 1st of the following, following year. That's primarily designed for people who forget that first year. But the, the caveat there is that if you do wait until April 1st of the following year, well, you're going to have to take two RMDs, and I've seen that put people in a position where they're, it causes them to pay more tax on Social Security and bumps them into a higher tax bracket. So making sure that your financial advisor is guiding you in those decisions uh, is tremendously helpful, especially if you're already retired. What is the penalty if you do it wrong? If you do not take the correct RMD, what is the penalty? Yeah, it's one of the highest penalties assessed by the IRS. It's 50%. And I talk to people uh, periodically that say, well, the IRS doesn't have the resources to pursue this. Well, they collect $2 billion a year from uh, RMDs that have either not been taken or been taken incorrectly. That tells me they've got quite a good amount of resources available because $2 billion is a pretty sizable amount to me. I don't know about you, Jordan. It is. Uh, you also talk about making your investment allocations correct for Social Security. W- what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, again, Social Security, most people don't uh, don't think about the fact that Social Security can be taxable. And if you're, um, if you're in a situation where you know, you're, you take too much money out of your IRA or your investments, well, it can, it can push Social Security up, your, uh, what the IRS calls your provisional income, to a point where you do have to pay taxes on Social Security. And if it's over a certain threshold, well, then up to 85% of your Social Security uh, can be included in income for tax purposes. And that can cr- create some serious problems for people who aren't ready for it. In about a minute or so we have left, why don't you kind of sum up what a difference it'll make to follow the strategies you talk about in common sense income strategies compared to what most people do who are entering retirement today? Yeah, um, most people are taking, are, are really taking a kind of a cross your fingers and toes and hoping that the market performs for the rest of their retirement. We're asking people to take a look at, you know, answer the question, how much income do you need? Understand, uh, understand that number and then figure out based on whether you have a pension or Social Security, what is the income gap that you need to fill with other investments? And once you know what that gap is, then you can back into the number that you need to have in order to make sure that you have enough income because income in the early years and protecting principal is, the, is one of the biggest keys to a successful long 20 to 30-year retirement. You don't want to be tapping in, into principal too soon because if you do you may end up running out of, of money before you run out of life. If you have a major correction and you're fully exposed to uh, the stock market, meaning common stocks and mutual funds, you're going to be the ones that get hurt the most if you're relying on those vehicles for income. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Michael Easton. His book is called Common Sense Income Strategies, and you can find out more at his website, which is commonsenseincomestrategies.com. Very interesting stuff. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Michael. It's my pleasure. Thanks again, Jordan. Thanks so much, and we'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.